I hope the time we spend here together will be strengthening and uplifting and beneficial and that we can all leave here saying that it was good to have been to the house of the Lord today. Next Sunday evening, I'll be preaching in Lufkin at the Angelina Church of Christ, and I've only visited there a a time or two for area-wide singings that they've had. I imagine that more or less the order of services will be like here, but since I've never been there, I don't know that for certain. I think it's interesting to visit different congregations and to see some of those different ways that they do things from time to time. So, for instance, when I go to center where my dad preaches, I joke with him sometimes that they have a liturgy because they have this printed out order of worship, but sometimes they just burst into song, and if you're not paying attention or if you've never been there before, you don't really know what's going on. They have a a call to worship, they have a song before the collection, they have a closing song, and they just start singing, and if you've been there, you sort of know the playbook, but if not, you might be a little bit lost. Or sometimes I've seen congregations that close services a little bit differently. Most places, it's like here where there'll be the sermon and invitation song, and then we'll have a a closing song and prayer. But I've seen some places where they reverse that closing song and prayer. There was uh, one congregation I know of that did that, presumably inspired by Jesus' example. They sung a hymn, and then they went out. And so they started having the closing prayer and then singing a song after. They didn't keep that up very long because most people would stop singing that, and then they just sort of stare at each other kind of awkwardly because they didn't have that prayer to signal to go out. I say all of that because I read about a particular minister who closes services the same way each and every Sunday. And for years now, after the closing song and the closing prayer, he stands up in the center aisle, he holds his Bible high, and he quotes from Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse number 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Year after year, week after week of repeating these same words every Sunday. Why? He says this, I repeat these words each week to remind us that as Christians, our sole source of authority in life is this book. We're to live by its teachings, not the fickle feelings of experience, not the flawed tenets of human intellect, Not the easily forgotten rationales behind tradition. No, this book is to be our guide in faith and practice. Since the words of this book are not man's but God's, we need to remember to use this book every day as a handbook for living as God intended. I think those are good suggestions. The larger context of Colossians chapter 3 is all about setting our minds on things above and becoming like Christ. In fact, the song that Kelly chose to lead into our sermon this morning, Footprints of Jesus Will Follow Those Wherever They May Go, you couldn't pick 
a better song to sum up the message here of Colossians chapter 3. There's a list of evils to put away. There's a list of virtues to put on above all love. Tristan read that a few moments ago. That's what starts in verse number 12. And finally, we come to verses 15 through 17 as a sort of capstone of what we're to be in Christ and following in his footsteps. So let's walk through these verses this morning and briefly consider what this passage has to say to us. It begins by saying here in verse number 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Paul says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And I want you to notice this word rule here. This is a really interesting word because this is actually the only time that we find it in all of the New Testament. It's a really old Greek word that originally meant to award prizes in contests, particularly athletic contests. And then over time, it came to mean someone who acts as an arbiter in the games. This is a sports term, an athletic term. And we actually have a number of our sports today that descend from those the Greeks participated in, the discus throw, the javelin throw, running the marathon, all of those we associate with the modern Olympic Games. So we would call this person an umpire or a referee as a judge. That's what this word means, to act as an umpire. What does an umpire do? What does a referee do? When they make a decision... It carries the day. They control things there on the field of play. When the referee rules, that determines the result. That's the same thing we're talking about here with this word. Think about what Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 18. If it's possible, as much as it lies in you, live peaceably with all men. Let the peace of Christ rule, Paul says here. Let it be your umpire, your referee. Let it determine the result. But who or what actually rules in our hearts? If we allow worry or anxiety to have its way, there will be no peace. If we allow complaints and criticism to control us, There won't be any peace. If we're gripped, racked by guilt, there will be no peace. If we allow bitterness or resentment or hatred or envy or any of those negative festering emotions to rage within us, there will be no peace. In the early 20th century, Argentina and Chile were on the brink of war over their disputed boundary. But finally, at the 11th hour, there was a a diplomatic breakthrough and war was averted. And to commemorate that, in 1904, they erected this enormous statue there in the mountain pass at the border. It's a huge image of Christ. It was actually made from cannons that were melted down. That's how they cast it. And to dedicate that, 3,000 citizens from 
each country made their way up that difficult pass into the mountains, and they watched as soldiers from both sides who not very long before had been ready to fire their guns at each other now, now fired off a salute together. And on the base of that statue is carved in Spanish, Sooner shall these mountain crags crumble to dust than Chile and Argentina shall break this peace which at the feet of Christ the Redeemer they have sworn to maintain. And as you see there high in the mountains, Christ the Redeemer of the Andes still stands. And indeed, Argentina and Chile have never broken that peace. It's lasted over a century now. Jesus said, John chapter 14, verse 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And of course, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitudes, blessed are the peacemakers. We are to be people of peace. The peace of Christ. Christ is the Prince of Peace, as Robert aptly pointed out in his opening prayer this morning. God calls us to peace. Scripture says we do that by putting the needs of other people ahead of our own. We promote peace by forgiving those who've sinned against us. We promote peace by praying for other people, even praying for those who are enemies, even praying for other people when it's not easy. I think of the prayer of the married woman. Lord, I pray for wisdom to understand my husband, for love to forgive him, for patience to handle his moods. Because, Lord, if I pray for strength, I'm afraid I might beat him to death. Amen. Some of you can probably identify with that. It's not always easy to pray for others. It's not always easy to live in peace. And yet, even when it's difficult, especially when it's difficult, because that's the test, God has called us to peace. We promote peace by speaking well of others, especially behind their backs. We promote peace by not giving in to gossip and grumbling. We treat those things as if they're no big deal, but Scripture calls those things sin. We promote peace by seeking the good in others and trying to promote it and praising others for the good. Let's resolve to be people of peace. Let's resolve to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts and in our lives. With his strength, we can triumph over our troubles. We can be calm despite the conflict, the chaos swirling around us. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Next, Paul says in verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Let the word of Christ dwell in you. That means to let the word, inspired by the Spirit, to move into your heart, to take up residence. 
We might think about it like a new house that you buy and then you go to, to remodel it, to revamp some things in there to make it all look bright and shiny and new. That's what we allow the word to do to us, to remake our priorities, to reshape our thinking, to mold us, to refashion us into the type of people that God would have us to be. Scripture can do that if we let it. Someone has written of the Scriptures this. This book is the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy, its precepts are binding, its histories are true. Read it to be wise, believe it to be safe, practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you and comfort to cheer you. It's the traveler's map, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's character. Here paradise is restored, heaven opened, and the gates of hell exposed. Christ is its subject, our good, its purpose, and the glory of God, its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, and prayerfully. Follow its precepts, and it will lead you to Calvary, to the empty tomb, to a resurrected life in Christ, and yes, to glory itself for all eternity. So when it comes to the Word of God, love it, learn it, live it. Let the Word of God get into us. We need to get into the Word so that it can get inside us. We need its guidance. God hasn't left us to just grope about blindly in moral darkness. He's given us Scripture as a guide if we'll allow it to point the way. I think of what the psalmist says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. I think two of the words of Jesus. I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so because of that, I'll seek to glorify God. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. In all that I do, I will glorify God. Paul could actually appeal to his own example in writing this. I think of what he writes in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. It's a song that we sing sometimes. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I, that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Who lives in you? Who lives in me? Who do people see when they look at us? Gordon Maxwell was a 19th century missionary to India. And the story is told that he asked a Hindu man to help him learn the local language so that he could be more effective in preaching. And the man said to him, No, Sahib, I will not teach you my language. If I did, you would speak to me 
and make me a follower of Jesus. And Maxwell said, you misunderstand. I just want you to teach me the language. And the man was insistent. No, Sahib, I will not teach you. No man can live with you and not become a Christian. Can people say that about us? Is it that evident that Jesus is living in us, that we're walking in his footsteps? Notice, too, not only are all things to be done in the name of the Lord, but they involve giving thanks to God here in verse 17, giving thanks to God the Father through him. In fact, every one of these verses that we've read has to do with thanksgiving. Back in verse number 15, he says, be thankful. In verse number 16, when that word dwells in us and causes us to sing, we sing with thankfulness in our hearts to God. And then he says, finally, we give thanks to God the Father through him in all that we do. That spirit, that attitude of gratitude is so important and such a significant counterweight to the the selfishness that permeates our society. We have been so richly blessed in so many ways. Let's thank God for that. Let's recognize that he's the source of everything that we have. Giving thanks will change our perspective. It'll change our priorities. Instead of looking for the bad, we'll rejoice in the good. Instead of focusing on all the problems, we'll see the possibilities that stretch out before us. We'll be grateful for what we have instead of greedy for those things we don't have. We'll look for what's right instead of always focusing on and looking for what's wrong. I think of the words of Paul again here from his letter to the church in Philippi. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. I think we can sum up our message this morning of pursuing Christ, of pursuing his peace, his word, his will in our lives with an old story, one of those that is probably apocryphal. I don't know if this ever took place or not, but maybe it did. You might have heard this story before. In the 19th century, obviously before television, but before motion pictures, before there was even radio. It was common for troops of actors or even a single actor to make a tour and to go across the country and to entertain people that way. If you've ever seen My Darling Clementine, for instance, the old uh, Henry Fonda Western, think of the Shakespearean actor uh, giving soliloquies there in the saloon. That sort of thing really took place. Well, one such actor, a renowned orator, went and made a tour of the West, and he went into one particular relatively small town, and the local hall was packed. People were eager to see any sort of entertainment. And he did his program, and when he was done, there was just a a thunderous ovation. They hadn't had enough. They were starved for entertainment, and so they asked him to come out and to do more, to give an encore. And so he decided to take requests from the audience hand shot up. It was an old, weather-beaten man. He said, would you please do the 23rd song? 
the actor considered him for a few minutes. Finally, he said, I will do it on one condition, that when I've finished, you'll get up here and you'll do the song. The old man was puzzled, but he agreed. And so the actor began on his recitation. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. So on throughout the rest of the psalm. We sang it earlier today, in fact. And he used all of the skills of his art. He enunciated the words perfectly, and at the end there was thunderous applause. The people were enraptured by it. And then he called for that old man to come to the stage. His face was weather-beaten. His voice wasn't properly trained. It cracked even as he began. But slowly, haltingly, he began to recite those words. And as he did, his face almost took on a glow because each and every one was so meaningful to him. And by the time he was finished, there was no applause. The only sounds that could be heard to break the silence were some muffled sobs and the ruffling of handkerchiefs. Finally, that actor stepped forward and he said, you see, ladies and gentlemen, it's as I suspected. I know the psalm, but that man knows the shepherd. Do you know the shepherd this morning? Have you accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Do you endeavor to walk in his footprints? Does the peace of Christ rule in your life? Does his word dwell in you? Do you do everything in this life in the name of the Lord? Do you seek to do his will in all things? If not, we invite you to become part of his people this morning, putting your faith, your trust in Jesus, turning to God in repentance, being buried in the waters of baptism, having your sins washed away, being added to God's people, embarking on that life of glorifying him and doing all things in his name. Maybe you're here this morning and you already are a Christian, but you haven't prioritized things the way that you ought. You haven't pursued that peace. You haven't allowed the word to dwell in you. You glorify yourself rather than doing all things in his name. Whatever your need may be, if you need to make changes today, if we can help you in any way, won't you come now while we stand and while we sing?